Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. A very special, very, very special edition of the Second Drafts podcast. For those who are new to Second Drafts, um, this is a podcast that I do to accompany the Friday newsletter that I write and send out. And then once a month, I do a podcast as well as a book review. And normally, the podcast and the book review are uh, additional, $5 a month if you'd like to uh, subscribe. But this one, it, we're making it free for everyone. If you followed Second Drafts during the past year, you may have periodically heard about the memoir project I've been helping a friend write. And after beginning the process in June of 2021, then making a research trip to California last October, um, I included three different excerpts from the book here in the second drafts newsletter and the feedback from my readers you all was really positive and so that was really encouraging so thanks for taking the time to read that but i've got big news the wait is officially over mako's world a memoir of calculated adventures is out we'll talk about how you can get your copy in a little bit but today we have mako himself mark carroll as our special guest on the Second Drafts podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Craig. Uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> this, uh, this is a big deal for us. We've been working on this book for a year. I mean, we started it last June. And I had always, one of the goals I had was when we finish the book, we get it up so that people can buy it, that we had to do a podcast. And so this one is a special edition, Mako's World Podcast. It's going to be broadcasted far and wide, all across the world, throughout the universe. And uh, I'm glad that we could do this together. Me as well. Thank you, Craig, for <laughs> making time to do this. Now you're 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 kind of a little you're a little subdued here. I mean, we got <laughs> we got to bring out the the real Mako because people aren't going to believe that you're the character in the book, which we're going to get to in just a minute. But um, well, that's because I need huge waves to make my yeah, that's true. come up. We're both sitting here in Hawaiian shirts just to add to the excitement, just to add to the vibe. So if you haven't, if you're just listening to the podcast, you definitely want to go to craigdunham.substack.com and find the podcast page because we've got the picture of us sitting here in our Hawaiian shirts, of course, in Montana, which makes no sense, but we're trying. So anyway... For those of you who want to know about the book, here, here's the details. So, coming of age in 1970 Southern California, Mark Carroll lost his father, who was a secret agent for the U.S. government, when he was 10. His idyllic world torn apart, he took up surfing to try to make sense of abusive classmate cruelty, a complicated relationship with his oft-absent mother, and the struggles of being a default father figure to his younger brother and sister. Mathematics and physics became Carroll's other coping mechanisms. Graduating as a top mechanical engineer from the University of California in Santa Barbara, he embarked on a 38-year career as varied as the number of beaches he surfed, which is a lot. And we actually have a whole appendix in the book of all the beaches all over the world that uh, Mark has caught 10 on. Is that the right phrase? I'm not a surfer. Well, 10 on some of them, most of them, you know, you try try to get in the barrel. Okay, we'll get in the barrel. So 
So we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about some of the, these beaches. But he worked in everything from government agency grunt work to corporate soldiering to executive leadership now in mergers and acquisitions around the world. And so the book chronicles the evolution of his when-in-doubt action approach and is filled with remarkable stories. Uh, and, the, and Mark keeps telling me they're actually true, so I keep believing him of escaping multiple shark attacks off the coast of California, running from drug dealers in Mexico, and surviving a Class 5 cyclone in Fiji. Uh, The book will have readers shaking their heads while opening their hearts to a search for meaning while making peace with his past. How's that for a summary? Did we did I, we get it? I I think that's great. And you know, the only thing I could add, I don't know where I heard this, but you know, it ain't bragging if it's true. <laughs> I think that was Yogi Berra. <laughs> Is that it, right? it, it ain't bragging if you can do it. Okay. So there you go. And, and you did it. So obviously, the first question we have to deal with: Why Mako? Like, where did Mako come from? What, what's, yeah, what's the so, story? Let's see. I guess we got to reach back and set some context. You know, um, for those of you who are not from Southern California, um, Santa Catalina Island, which uh, is actually a mountain range that after the glaciers started to melt, of course, climate change has been going on for a long time the water filled in the valley between Santa Catalina Island and the West Coast. Okay. And so there's an island out there. There's a town there, uh, which is part of Los Angeles County, called Avalon. And in Avalon, they have a lot of tourist shops. And and somebody actually bought me this pink tank top very touristy <laughs> thing please tell me this was in the 80s uh yeah um, might have been yeah late yeah it was early 80s for okay. sure okay i feel better um, now yeah and so so you got a pink tank top and on it it says make of my day and it's a big shark sort of breaching the water and they brought it to me and it just it just spoke to me i don't know and <laughs> and you know so i wore this pink tank top all the time all the time and when I met my wife, Lori, and that was at SeaWorld in San Diego, um, you know, sometimes seagulls will fly by and poop on you, and <laughs> fishermen say that's good luck. I'm not so sure. Um, and a pelican flew by and pooped on me, and it pooped all over my shirt and all over my arm i mean it's it's like it's not a bird poop it's it's pretty dramatic it's something different yeah anyway so that you know i was quite embarrassed by that but i was more concerned that my shirt was going to be wrecked (laughs) anyway so people started calling me mako as a nickname because all, you, you all were always the wearing place. the shirt. Always wearing the shirt. When I was playing Ultimate Frisbee, when I was with the Navy, um, we'd play Ultimate Frisbee after work down in San Diego. And uh, people just called me Mako Mark. And mm. that kind of stuck. And then, um, you know, I told that story to my kids. And they latched onto it. And they always call me Mako to this day. They still They don't call me dad they don't call me mark they say hey mako what do you Hmm. think about this (laughs) um and that just kind of stuck with me 
Hmm. So um, not all my friends know me as Mako, but many do. Now, what about in your business relationships? Like, did that transfer over into No, I've always work? kept it's that always kept... compartmentalized okay. because keep in mind in the 70s, being a surfer was was not cool mm. okay people younger people don't realize that it, it was not cool to be a surfer surfer equaled bum okay and so you hit it uh from any of your professional colleagues you would never let it out that you surfed on the weekend or that you were a surfer or that you owned a surfboard at all even in california oh yeah no that was that was a career killer really okay. oh yeah so um you know you, you just kind of tried to keep those things compartmentalized <laughs> which you know can can lead to a bit of a a yin and yang kind of life you right. know and, and that's exactly how my life played out right because it's not every surfer dude who's also a mechanical engineer businessman that's Correct. kind of an odd, odd mix. No, even even at Santa Barbara, which was, I mean, I picked that school because right. because of the mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering building was on one of the premier surf spots. <laughs> okay, that's why I picked that school. Okay, um, it called Campus Point. You don't. You didn't tell your professors that you were a surfer. Even even no. in Santa Barbara. No. Okay. No, because that would just sort of bias the grades down let's say because mechanical engineering they they wanted you to go forth and and succeed in industry and elevate the brand of your degree from that university right it's it's a symbiotic thing and it, it's it's like a, a closed loop control system or a flywheel that comes back around right and so you know they don't they they still viewed the 60s and 70s 70s as you know surfers were bums they're not going to make anything of themselves okay so so they didn't want they wanted mechanical engineers who weren't wearing ocean pacific shorts correct and the various and sundry paraphernalia well, they're they're fine. It's just that those folks would be dismissed. You know, oh. they're they're not going to be the ones that are going to get the great references. They're not taking seriously. They're not going to get the referrals for the good internships or the referrals for the premier uh, career positions after graduating. Mm -hmm. It just they they just wouldn't take you seriously. But somehow, even, even at a surfer school, okay, yeah. that is and was. I don't know how it is today, but at that time, it was the surfer school. Well, let's talk about that time, because you you grew up, you were a kid through the 60s. Yeah. And then you really came of age in the 70s, kind of on the, the second generation, would you say, of California surfing? I mean, tell yeah, for, for those of us so. from Montana, and then for those of us even further east in the Midwest, what, I mean... Educate us a little bit on yeah, surfing. Yeah, so I, I grew up with, you know, my heroes were like Hobie Alter, Don Hansen, who lives here in Big Right, Sky. and you happens, you were on the airplane <laughs> yeah, with him. Yeah, I was the on the airplane <laughs> with him the other day. We were sitting up at the front of the airplane. 
which is uh, kind of comical, you know, two two old surfers or, you know, captains of industry sitting in the front row <laughs> of the airplane. But you, but he was a generation ahead of you. Yes, right, very much okay. so. Like I could be his son. Okay, um, and he was friends with my heroes, right? Okay. Um, you know, uh, Greg Knoll, Hobie Alter, like I said, Grubby from Clark Foam. Um, gosh, I'd have to think about it. Um, Herbie Fletcher and um, uh, gosh, I'm blanking out right well, now. Well, but these are so these were the heroes of the sport. These yes. were your heroes. Most of us, I mean, we never grew up surfing, right. obviously. It, that's a whole different echelon and Parthenon, so yes. to speak, of heroes. Yeah, so those, to put it in context, those surfboards back in the day started out, like in the 50s, they were gigantic redwood planks. Okay. Which... So they were actual wood. Yeah. They weren't foam. No. Okay. They were wood, so you carry them down to the beach, your workout's pretty much done, <laughs> you know? <laughs> By today's standards, right. right? But these guys were watermen, and they were incredibly strong, and and uh, they would get out there, and of course they would just go straight, right? Because they didn't have even the first boards didn't have fins or anything hmm. on them. Um, but then, as you know, sort of after World War II, there were a lot of aerospace innovations in Los Angeles. That's where it started. Uh, fiberglass and foam from uh, airplane manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so that was applied to surfboards and that brought a whole new era of surfboards. So that was the 60s and that was kind of the the Chuck Knoll era, which was, you know, ended up going from Manhattan Beach, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, to the North Shore of Hawaii and riding bigger and bigger waves. Okay. And that was just like, okay, paddle hard, take off, survive. Mm. Survive the drop and outrun the wave. That was the goal, okay. okay? That was the 60s. Then there was sort of like this revolution that went to shorter boards. And um, then the biggest innovation was, okay, rather than just going straight and surviving the wave, now you could actually like, do a turn mm. and you and and you could like cut back because of the fins yes okay and the and the rail line had a curve to it so that allowed you to cut back into the power part of the wave mm -hmm. rather than just sort of being subject to the wave gives you what it gives you and you, you take it and you take the best of it now it added a whole nother dimension of reading the gravity line being able to um, cut back into the wave and re-harvest more of the gravity that the wave Okay, now this is, this is the mechanical engineering part. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? No, this is all the how, where the physics right. lays into, you know, kind of the free ride. So it's, it's, not just, it's not just grabbing the next wave that comes, but it's, it's looking and watching and waiting and timing and... Yes all of that yeah so then you know i mean that nothing has um unintended everything has unintended consequences right so you you had order for a short period of time everybody goes straight 
survive the wave. Now somebody has the ability to cut back. Well, now if everybody is on the wave at the same time and you cut back, now everybody's colliding. <laughs> right. And so then another um, realm of chaos starts up again, mm -hmm. which is interesting. You know, it's always this ebb and flow of order, chaos, chaos to order and back and forth. It, it's a recurring thing, both in nature in physics and of course it happens with waves i mm. mean so in so many ways mm -hmm. so uh, talk about how how and why did you get started surfing well i think my upbringing was pretty turbulent pretty pretty i mean like a lot of people right mm -hmm. a lot of people ha have stories like that um and for me be you know i had my father long enough to teach me some pretty substantial character lessons. And, you know, I only had him for 10 years, but that was long enough to, for him to imprint on me some really strong yeah. lessons. Because he was a man of character. I mean, he... 100%. Well, let me t talk about him a little bit. Sure. Well, so he grew up poor uh, in... Um, you know, not really in a town, but in a hauler, mm -hmm. uh, somewhere between Arkansas, Mississippi, and Tennessee. It was really, he was born in like a county, mm -hmm. you know, in the hauler, which if you don't know what a hauler is, a hauler is... Well, no, I do. I'm from the you, Midwest. You know. I, I, it's I like get that. How far you can yell, that's <laughs> basically your family's territory, you know. That's the hauler. That's the hauler. <laughs> So, um, and then eventually they moved to Phoenix cause he had, uh, pneumonia, uh, and the doctor said, well, you got to move. So they moved the whole family, which was, I can't remember what I told you, how many kids, seven or eight kids. <laughs> um, and they all moved out in one little, you know, sedan it was a bit of a Beverly Hillbillies kind of hundred yeah. percent. Like they had to get out of the car and push up the up the, the hills. hills. Yeah. yeah, because um, you know uh, Route sixty six wasn't like a super highway back then. It right. was a little windy road through down every little mountain gully and canyon and what have you. So you know the stories that I would hear was he would get a new T shirt and a new pair of blue jeans before school started in the fall every year mm -hmm. that was it mm. um so he came out of poverty poverty and but he was really he's pretty sharp pretty sharp um did well in school in phoenix um was quite athletic D uh did gymnastics was his sport so mm -hmm. floor exercise you know handsprings mm -hmm. and tumbling and all that um he was not a large man he was a small compact person but very agile very um uh just athletic and um you know sort of figured well i'm not gonna have enough money to get a degree to to, to move forward so he enlisted in the army and they tested him of course as they do they and he tested off the charts on his iq mm -hmm. so they said okay well you're not going to be an enlisted guy we're sending you to language school in monterey 
and he went to the Monterey language school at full immersion in German. So that was like 1951, 1952. Um, and in that school, my understanding is once you step in there, they don't speak English ever again. Mm. And you're taught how to eat like a German person or European. Um, you know, there's, there's subtleties with which hand you use the knife with, right? right? Um I think the knife always goes in the right hand is how it goes. And you use the fork with the left and you don't switch. Americans switch. Right. That's a dead giveaway that you're an American. And that would have been a problem. Yes. Because what he ended up going into... Was the Cold War. <laughs> so And as, as a spy. As a spy in Berlin. In actually East Germany. Okay. So before the wall, he was in East Germany. This is post-World War II. And his job was to be a German business person. Um, he, his name or code name was Klaus von Krull because phonetically, if someone were to call Carol, he would respond or, you know, he would recognize Carol, right? So if they, they said von Krull, it would sort of sound familiar enough that he would turn okay. and recognize. So that was all architected during his time in Monterey. Mm. There were other subtleties like, you know, you could never wear an American pair of shoes. That's a dead giveaway. Right. You cannot chew gum. Mm. Um, like I said, you got to eat properly. Um, you need to learn not only the language, which he was fluent in German, and it didn't hurt that he was blonde and blue eyes <laughs> um, because we have more Finnish Swiss mm -hmm. uh, ancestry. So he came by that naturally. Um, but then, you know, he, he told me stories, oh, that you had to learn how to sing. Mm. This was super important. You had to be able to sing the songs from that region of Germany. Mm. And so he would tell me his job, which he didn't like to talk about it too much, but there were little things that would slip out, you know, and he would say, well, you know, like he taught me to sing songs in German. Mm. Uh, that, you know, his Stein was at the bar that he would frequent. And, you know, that was important. He would show up, he'd ask for, you know, a beer and they put it in his stein. stein and bring it down you know the the large mm -hmm. ornate steins with sure. the caps or what have you and then um he would have to sing songs with people and become friendly because he was trying to discover if who who was trying to bring the nazi party back because hmm. it, it didn't go right. away it didn't it never stop away. right no. absolutely it just became a secret society and mm -hmm. so he was trying to penetrate that and then he was also, I believe, he was trying to um, discover the fissional, fissionable material or radioactive uh, material that they were using to develop their own atomic bomb, which they never achieved, thankfully. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a whole nother story sure. why they, they slow rolled that <laughs> and didn't get it. But... Um, the U.S. never found that material. Mm. It was hidden in some cave, they theorized. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, so he was in search of that. So that I mean, so this was your father. Yes. He comes back from from Germany, and pretty pretty well trained. Well, yes. I mean, lots of experiences. Pretty bright guy, and he meets your mother. Yes. Who she was from Boston, right? Yes. She. Her she, name was Teresa. Teresa came out west from Boston. Um, she had gone to nursing school. She couldn't wait to get out of provincial New England mm-hmm. um, and went straight to Hollywood okay. and was able to get a job easily because she was a nurse. And there weren't many people in California. Right, because California the con- then... context, there weren't many people there. Yeah, it's just so hard to imagine for those, yes. those of us who didn't grow up or right you know our full understanding of california is based on you know chips and (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know all we see are motorcycles driving down interstates i mean that's what i grew up that was my first impression of california sure yeah this is before the freeways right (laughs) so (laughs) so so your mom and dad married and then you came along three years later no no like uh, I think I came along Two, maybe nine months. Nine later. months later, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I forgot that. But but you grew up with. I mean, your dad was a pretty significant part of your growing up. Yeah, you had him for ten years. Yeah, it was. He was very principled. You know, there was a regiment. There was a rigor to every week. Hmm. Um, every Saturday. Every Saturday, which was a long day of training. Hmm. essentially you know it was um you know road climbs pull-ups uh running the track um and my dad was phenomenal rope climber by the way that was like crazy like he didn't use his legs Mm -hmm. and he would climb in an l up Mm -hmm. and down up and down and for some reason rope climbs were like the central piece of our fitness (laughs) regimen which you know served me well later on in life when i was in high school athletics you know you can climb a rope without your legs it's kind of impressive to most youngsters right uh i one time did a hundred in one day wow no legs that is impressive for a fundraiser yeah (laughs) anyway um so uh but i mean he was your hero i mean he was oh yeah 100 percent. he was he was your father he spent time with you he it was an endless amount of character lessons that mm. you could never absorb all of it. Mm. It rarely repeated, but mm-hmm. when it did, you paid attention right. to that. Like if it was boxing and it was fighting, it was de- defending yourself, those lessons were repeated, like how to tire out an opponent, how to mm. finish an opponent. Um, and that was instilled from seven eight years old right and all that was great and grand and then at 10 on father's day you lost your dad yes he was 39 yeah Yeah. and he died from cancer leukemia leukemia yeah i mean which ultimately results in pneumonia right and so from there that totally rocked your world oh yeah Yeah, I mean, like, so, I mean, one, one symbol of that was, you know, probably every three weeks, 
you know, we'd go out in the front yard and he'd buzz cut my brother and I, right? Mm -hmm. So if our hair got longer mm -hmm. than a half an inch, okay, it's time for, for a haircut. Which, of course, you'd get a lot of ridicule in school at that time, you know. It just wasn't that popular to have a buzz cut. Right. Um, so when my dad passed away, my brother and I were like, well, that's the end of that. Because right. <laughs> There's not going to be any more haircuts. Because <laughs> at this time, we're into the early 70s. Yeah. Which, again, we've, we've gone through late 60s and all that that was in the country, and the short haircuts were kind of out. Yes. And so you're going into the early 70s now. Well, you, you, know, you keep in mind, I mean, like, 72, we were still in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, so every night was the draft, and you had the revolution domestically, like, you know, hey, going to Vietnam's not cool. Coming back from Vietnam's not even cool. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you had short hair, you're part of the establishment, mm -hmm. man. So that was not cool, right. you know, like ecology. If you ever heard that name, right? <laughs> that was popular. Mm. And so it was at that point, early 70s, you just lost your dad. Your life's kind of upside down in a lot of ways for you and your brother and your sister, both of whom are younger. Yes. Mike and Christina. And you discovered surfing. Or you found surfing, or you well, I, you were desperate I, for surfing. I well, know. you know, I mean, you you go through this thing where you want to prove yourself to the image or the the memory of your father, right? Mm -hmm. Which there was always this emphasis on physical fitness, right? And so I played every sport, mm. but that coupled with the fact that. You know, he had made me skip two grades in elementary school. Right. He, he was a very forceful, influential person. So when he talked with the principal of an elementary school, that happened, right? So he made me skip two grades. Because he wanted to challenge you. Yes. And, and I was up for the challenge academically, not socially, mm -hmm. and certainly not later on when you have to, you know, play football and you know the seniors are 18 and you're 14 mm -hmm. that's a huge yeah. uh physical you know um just in terms of physical growth and and hormones and everything that's pretty challenging right so so i went all in on organized sports mm -hmm. but i didn't get positive feedback from that because i was so you're small much behind the curve yeah. i was very small um where surfing the ocean didn't care mm -hmm. and the ocean would beat the crud out of me right but then if i rose to the challenge um and brought my full vitality to it it would reward me. Hmm. And that was intoxicating. Mm -hmm. it, it was unbelievable, really. Hmm. And it so, became an addiction. Right. And so you would surf all the time. All the time. As much as I could. Before school, after school, all summer long, all day long in the summer. Mm -hmm. 
Because at this point, you're living in Westlake Village. Yes. Which is just over... The hill. The hill from, from Malibu. Malibu. Right. So you're about seven miles away. As right? the crow flies. As the crow flies. Yeah. yeah. There's some winding roads, which yes. we've, we drove. Yes, we did. And But but that's... Dramamine that, and all. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but that that's what... That that's what life was was surfing. for a long time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, and and time speeds up as you get older, right? Mm-hmm. During those times, you know, those summers were long, mm-hmm. and um, those were great, you know, proving grounds for me and my friends and my brother, of course, mm-hmm. who was very much a natural surfer. He had spent, you know, a couple summers in Hawaii on the south shore of Oahu and uh, really honed his skills and challenged me, which was good for him because he was always under me, right? Always in my shadow in organized sports. And for him to come back from Hawaii and be like, well, hey, Mark, that's not how it really goes (laughs) over there, you know? Well, and you guys had... I mean, you and Mike and Christina, those were interesting times because you had kind of become the default father. Yes. And that sometimes went well, that sometimes didn't for all of you. I mean, you were all trying to figure it out. Well, yeah, there was no playbook to follow. I was just ad-libbing it completely. And it wasn't a situation where... Certainly, I didn't have a spouse to bounce off. Well, hey, how do we handle this situation? And my mom was mostly absent. So Mm -hmm. it was up to me to just figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was pretty mixed (laughs) (laughs) on how I handled that. However, it did inform me as an actual parent later on, which I think... I, I I think I did a good job the second time around. <laughs> so. Well, and I've talked with Mike, and you know, Mike has said he thought you you gave it a pretty good shot. Now, of course, he like you is is saying that from the benefit of of history and looking back, sure, and sure. so it's a different perspective. But when you guys were you know in your teens together, and oh, it could have gone much worse. Yeah, it could have gone way <laughs> off the rails, and it and it came very. It teetered on that multiple times. I right. mean, we had run-ins with the law, and we blew stuff up all the time. And, I mean, you know, again, it was like this sort of, you know, you sort of almost like a sinusoidal wave. You you delve down into chaos, and then you come back up and emerge into order. And... and I think that's just a recurring thing throughout my whole life. Yeah. It's been that way. To order your copy of Mako's World, go to makosworldbook.com or search for it directly on Amazon. Amazon.